Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. My talk today is in service because I do see us at the, as the Catholic University as in service to the church. We need to keep that in mind all the time as we do at Franciscan, and it's one of the reasons I'm here at Franciscan. I've always admired Franciscan's commitment to serving the church, and one of the ways we do that is by helping to shape the culture. And in too many times in the past, many Catholic universities have become victims of the culture, have become of the culture instead of shaping the culture. Um, And we see that in too many places. For those of you who were here last night for Scott's brilliant talk, um, I was so impressed by the long list of students that he, he mentioned having shaped. I had no idea, because I'm new to Franciscan, this is my third year, and had no idea that these big names were Franciscan grads. I knew that, you know, I, I just had no idea. And I have to say I was a little bit envious of Scott because my experience of Catholic education has been shaped very differently. I came from a, a beautiful Catholic school on the West Coast that had extraordinary people, but their commitment to the culture was very different than Franciscan. They saw themselves as being supportive of all their students, whatever they did, whatever they were, whatever they chose, we were there to support them and not make judgments. And so when Ex Corde Ecclesiae came out, I was there in the early 90s when it first was released, I was very excited because that whole idea of shaping the culture was woven throughout the document. And I wanted to be part of that, and I thought others might too. But I can see that was very naive of me. Ex Corde was a dead letter on my campus. Not just a dead letter, there was hostility that greeted it. And we weren't the only campus. Um, The theologians throughout the country were very angry when Ex Corde was first released, um, especially at my school. But in America, the Jesuit magazine, There was an article entitled, The Impending Death of Catholic Higher Education. It was written by Loyola University of Chicago theologian John Nilsson. Nilsson, who was also the vice president of the Catholic Theological Society, likened the release of Ex Corde to the release of a nuclear bomb. Nilsson wrote that during the Cold War, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists became famous for its doomsday clock. He wrote, the position of the hands on the clock showed how close the world was in the judgment of the publication's board of directors to the midnight of mass nuclear annihilation. Every time the directors moved the hands one way or another, it was news. And Nelson said, if there's a doomsday clock for Catholic higher education in the United States, its hand moved closer to midnight in November 1999 when the U.S. bishops approved ex corde ecclesiae. The hands moved still closer this past November when the bishops accepted draft procedures for implementing the application's requirement for a mandatum for theologians. 
The hands are still moving, counting down to the moment when the American experience of independent but church-related colleges as envisioned and enacted by Theodore Hesburgh and others will be terminated. The challenges and blessings, the tensions and benefits of our system will be lost to the church, to the academy, and to the nation itself as Catholic institutions are forced to become secular or sectarian. For Nielsen and many of the theologians on my own campus, Excordia was a threat because they said it was an intent to cripple the mission to culture. That's what they said. And that was in Nielsen's, cripple the church's mission to culture. I remember feeling confused because I had read the document. And I thought it was a joyful document, a life-affirming, a supportive, praising the good work that Catholic colleges do. I was more concerned about the lack of identity on my own campus than I was about any outside interference by our wonderful Bishop Rahm. He was a fabulous bishop who supported faculty and did everything he could to make life wonderful there for us. Inspiring, generous, he was everything our own bishop is. I don't mean to just pick on Bishop Rahm, but we're very fortunate. We were just talking, Paul and I, how, how fortunate we are with our bishop because he understands our mission and is so supportive of that and shares in that. He's part of us. And that's the way Bishop Brown was. But they saw him as an external authority, as a threat to their autonomy. They often called themselves an alternative magisterium. Alternative. And they said that, oh, no, there's a rich heritage of that, of us questioning. And yeah, I understand that. But not the important teachings. On my own campus, the liberation theologians were convinced that Christ was a socialist who would have deplored any form of capitalism as an evil. She also taught that God was really a woman named Gaia. And most were pro-choice, including many of the religious women on campus, pro-choice on abortion, and encouraged internships at Planned Parenthood. And that was always a bone of contention for me. When I was chair, I didn't have to allow internships at Planned Parenthood. But once I stepped down as chair, the department allowed internships at Planned Parenthood, and still do today. To me, the greatest threat to Catholic higher education was the lack of Catholic identity. And it still is to me. Um, the Cardinal Newman Society, who always says wonderful things about us, just recently issued a report about Catholic higher education. And, that, and they mentioned that more than 60 Catholic colleges have ties to Planned Parenthood. Many offer internships and other career opportunities. Um, places like Boston College, DePaul, Mount St. Mary's, Seattle, Stonehill, the University of Dayton, and the University of San Diego all offer internships for undergraduate students. University of San Diego recommends potential careers at Planned Parenthood online. Um, and once Cardinal Newman issued their report, University of San Diego removed it, and some of the others removed the links to Planned Parenthood. But the damage is done, and it's been there, and had they not done that. Worse, there are many faculty members on Catholic campuses who have also worked at Planned Parenthood or who concurrently work at Planned Parenthood. And I've just wrote an article about that. One of Fairfield University's assistant professors works as a physician assistant at Planned Parenthood. A nursing professor at the University of San Diego proudly posts on her vita that she received a certificate in OBGYN through a joint program at UC San Francisco and Planned Parenthood. Georgetown has two faculty members in the nursing program who have worked as certified midwives at Planned Parenthood, and Georgetown Law School has two faculty members who worked as general counsel 
at Planned Parenthood Federation. It's especially difficult to work at Planned Parenthood these days as a Catholic, I would think, in light of these horrific videos that we're seeing from the Center for Medical Progress, but it doesn't seem to be stopping too many. Um, when Loyola Marymount had a search for a new dean recently for arts and sciences, both of the two finalists had both worked at Planned Parenthood. Uh, one was a former dean from Fairfield, and the other, um, well, I don't want to say who it is. <laughs> now as Planned Parenthood prepares to mount their legal defense over those videos because they're suing the, the maker of those videos, he's in a lot of trouble. And it's very difficult. Life is very difficult for David. Um, Planned Parenthood will have plenty of help from Catholic campuses because there are branches of law schools for reproductive justice on all of these campuses. The Law Students for Reproductive Justice is a student law school organization that's been helping Catholic law schools train and mobilize law students and new lawyers to foster legal expertise and support for the realization of reproductive justice. This Law Students for Reproductive Justice collaborates with an organization called Catholics for Choice. Um, the Catholic University Law Schools that host law students for reproductive choice were so grateful to the Catholics for Choice that they gave them their major award at their annual gala, um, their initiative called Keeping Faith in the Conversation. Catholics for Choice provides toolkits to law schools for law students for reproductive justice to bring home to their Catholic campuses to convince others that abortion is sometimes the best choice a woman can make. Right now there are law students for reproductive justice chapters at DePaul, Fordham, Georgetown, Loyola um, of Los Angeles, Loyola of Chicago, Santa Clara, Seattle, St. Louis, Detroit Mercy, um, University of San Diego, University of San Francisco. Villanova has a chapter, but has really been denounced by the administration, and it's not really part of the school. It's probably unfair for me to even mention it, because the school is actively trying to remove them. But students can get together and start any, I mean, you can have Hoyas for choice, and Georgetown says that that's not sanctioned by the school, but the problem is that sometimes people just don't understand what Catholic teachings are. And I have to admit, in those early days of Ex Corde, when I was trying to defend the document and the Holy Father for issuing the document, I didn't really know enough to be able to confront these theologians. Um, so I had to educate myself. And many of the people on this campus had books that helped me educate myself to be able to, to not to confront them, but to at least have a conversation with them. Because I did have some that told me, well, you've never read Thomas Aquinas. And they were right. I hadn't. And they would say, well, he allowed for abortion. And the church has, throughout our history, allowed for abortion. No, I didn't think so. And I, so I really had to get educated about that. But what I learned is that Ex Corde is a beautiful, life-affirming document, one that reminds us that we have to be involved in shaping the culture. But we have to ask, do most Catholic universities deserve the support that the Holy Father asks us to give to these? Well, yes, of course, because we're Christian and we, we're charitable. We have to help them in any way we can. 
But do these Catholic one of the tenets of the ex corde is to make scholars available. And I'm thinking, do these Catholic universities make scholars available to speak the uncomfortable truths about the rights of the unborn child or end-of-life care? Not so much. In fact, they're usually on the other side. Um, do these scholars from Catholic universities speak the uncomfortable truths about gender as God-given? No, <laughs> not so much. And so on every one of these beautiful parts of the document, we have to say, not always, unfortunately, sadly. Most co Catholic college professors remain unwilling to speak these uncomfortable tr truths, choosing instead to adapt to the culture and ally with the popular culture. And even some really wonderful professors on Catholic co college campuses who are trying to bridge the gap, much like Scott said last night, we have to be friends with them. And so I've tried to be friends with them. And I offered to review a new book by a Catholic college professor, an East Coast Catholic college professor, who says he wants to move beyond the abortion wars. And he knew that I wrote a book called The Politics of Abortion. And in my book, I said, I'm an incrementalist. I think we can have conversations with the other side. But the bottom line is, you know, so he thought I would be kind of squishy on this and thought I would give his book a really good review. He was wrong. <sighs> because on page six of his book, he writes, the argument put forth in this book is consistent with defined Catholic doctrine. But then he goes on to try to convince us that Catholic doctrine allows for early-term abortion. In fact, this author suggests that the use of RU486, which is an abortifacient, it causes abortion, is not really an abortion pill. It's not a direct abortion. He, he writes, the drugs present in RU486 do not by their very nature appear to attack the fetus. Instead, the drug cuts off the pregnancy hormone and the fetus is detached from the woman's body. Some abortions are indirect and better understood as refusals to aid. That's on page 82 of his book. He says that's consistent with settled Catholic doctrine. I know enough to know, and everybody in this room knows enough to know, that that's not consistent with settled Catholic doctrine. That was the main stumbling block for Hobby Lobby. Even Hobby Lobby knows that's not consistent with any kind of pro-life doctrine at all. But in his book, he has proposed a deceptively named Mother and Prenatal Child Protective Act, an act which would allow early-term abortion, but not late-term abortion. This is settled. But this is the same author who brought um, <coughs> Princeton's most notorious professor, Peter Singer, to his campus to speak. He claimed that Singer is motivated by an admirable desire to respond to the suffering of humans and non-human animals. Um, he wrote a book about Peter Singer, calling it Peter Singer and Christian Ethics. And in that book, he writes, in this book, though Peter Singer is pro-choice on infanticide, on all the other complicated issues related to abortion but one, Singer sounds an awful lot like Pope John Paul II. He thought I would give his book a good review. And he was so angry when he read the review. In a post at New Evangelical Partnership for the Common Good, this Catholic college professor wrote that he found Singer to be friendly and compassionate. That's just crazy. 
And I told him so in a lengthy review I did of his book that he called Just Mean. Beyond the abortion wars, we're now faced with the marriage wars. And on Catholic campuses, it seems like many have allied with the other side. Rather than defending marriage as a union of one man and one woman, the majority of, I don't want to say the majority, the vocal uh, philosophers and theologians on many Catholic campuses have been lobbying against church teachings on marriage. In fact, there are scholars at Georgetown, Notre Dame, Manhattan College, Boston College, Seattle, and the University of San Francisco who have actually lobbied to end marriage or move beyond marriage. And these Catholic college faculty have received funding to mount these attacks on their own church. For those who support same-sex marriage, we know that one of the best ways to do that was to diminish Catholic teachings. As a result, some of the most brutal attacks on magisterial teachings are actually funded through Catholic colleges and universities. Gay billionaires, John Stryker and Tim Gill, two different foundations, are doing everything they can to use Catholic colleges and universities by paying them off. Um, both Stryker's Arcus Foundation and Tim Gill's Gill Foundation have made their aims explicit in their grant-making materials. Going to GuideStar offers a revealing picture of what they're doing. On their IRS 990 reporting forms, they describe themselves as private grant makers that support nonprofit organizations in two areas, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, human rights, and the Arcus Foundation also is interested in conservation of the world's great apes. They provide money to those organizations, including most notably Catholic colleges, as well as progressive faith-based organizations who are working toward full inclusion of gays and lesbians, including access to same-sex marriage. Hundreds of thousands of dollars have gone to this project, uh, also to Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics, Water, many of them are Catholic colleges. Um, escalating their attack in 2012, they disclosed that they offered 180000 to Water. One of the other ways they do this is to give money. Fairfield University was a major recipient of one of these big grants. They were the perfect choice for them, though, because they house theology professors who desperately want to change Catholic teaching. Paul Lakeland is head of their Catholic Studies department, and he wrote two books, one called Liberation of the Laity and Catholic, the other Catholicism at the Crossroads. He demands dramatic changes, including the abolition of the College of Cardinals, he wants the ability of Catholic parishes to elect their own bishops and their own pastors. He spearheaded a movement that I helped out in uh, with Archbishop Laurie at the time in Bridgeport, Connecticut, to remove really the power from the priests and the bishops from the parishes and replace it with state power and took a whole leadership role to do that. So it's a perfect place for this grant maker to put his money because Paul Lakeland wants to change teachings. Um, smart of them, <coughs> Fairfield received $100,000 from John Stryker's Arcus Foundation in 2010 to hold four forums at four Catholic colleges to disseminate information in order to expand the current discussion on homosexuality within the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, it really was a, a way to promote same-sex marriage, and they were very successful at it because if you look at Catholics and how they support it, is. Stryker uses kind of a subtle strategy. I, I, you wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it subtle, but it's more subtle than Tim Gill. Tim Gill's 
Foundation directly attacks the magisterium with systematic assaults on individual bishops. And they do that by funding groups like Faith in Public Life uh, and Faithful America. Last year's media attack on Archbishop Cordelioni out in San Francisco was funded by the Gill Foundation through those uh, attackers. And University of San Francisco was heavily involved in that. In fact, the University of San Francisco hosted many of the forums, the protest forums, against Archbishop. The Gill Foundation provides hundreds of thousands of dollars to organizations like Center for American Progress and Media Matters, but the LGBT community is, is but uh, to neutralize the teachings of the church on sexual morality. Um, Archbishop Corleone has really had a hard time, and he's one of the most courageous bishops I know, because he just wanted Catholic schools in the Bay Area to teach what's true. And the Catholic high schools were asked to look at a new um, guideline for how they might project Catholic teachings. That's all it was. He didn't change anything. He just made the expectations explicit by putting them in writing. And you would think it was like the end of the world, like John Nelson's doomsday clock. University of San Francisco mobilized, well, faculty, I don't want to say the university because it, it was not an institutional, but they hosted forums to um, mobilize. USF has hosted some of the most brutal attacks on Archbishop Corleone's attempt to ensure that San Francisco's Catholic high schools remain Catholic. They hosted a forum on March 16th, just this past spring, sponsored by a group actively petitioning, a Catholic group, petitioning against Archbishop's effort to fortify the Catholic identity. It was called Hear Our Voices, held at the Jesuit University, despite the fact that it featured speakers who publicly criticized the church. Um, the, the group concerned parents and students teach acceptance, actively opposed his revisions. One of the speakers criticized um, Archbishop and said that the Catholic Church itself is on, tra on track to become a shrinking, increasingly irrelevant cult. He's a writer for National Catholic Reporter, too. Um, another one of the protesters said that Archbishop Cordelioni is not in compliance with Catholic teaching. He declared that the Archbishop is selectively choosing a small number of doctrines and putting them forward in a selective way, distorting the tradition. The same Catholic leader called the Archbishop's revised language repulsive and encouraged students to disregard what it said. Last month's U.S. Supreme Court ruling, let me get this here because I know that the microphone's going crazy. One of the panelists um, was also an abortion supporter. But following the Supreme Court ruling, things have gotten a lot more difficult for those of us who are faithful Catholics those of us in this room know how difficult things have gotten. But at USF, instead of having discussions about the ruling, they celebrated the ruling, creating t-shirts. The Cardinal Newman Society captured their tweets, and so they published them. A post from the university's official Facebook account wrote, proudly part of the city that defines the word pride featuring the university's official logo, Love Wins. The official mascot, USF mascot, attended the Pride Parade wearing a, a shirt that said, proudly part of the city, 
that defines pride. Several employees and students wore logo t-shirts reading Pride 2015. Andrea Weiss, co-chair of the LGBT Caucus for Faculty and Staff, boasted that she helped grow the US involvement in the San Francisco Pride Parade from 75 people in 2013 to 200 this past June. For our purposes today, the most disconcerting part of the USF Facebook postings were the ones that said USF is proudly part of a city that defines gay pride. It's clear that counter to the intention of ex Corday, USF has allowed the culture of the city of San Francisco to shape the university itself, very much so. The school has allowed itself to become of the city rather than a force for truth within the city. Rather than helping to shape the culture, this school has been shaped by that most corrupted culture. No longer in service, I would say, they have become enslaved by that culture. And while the Holy Father stated in ex corde that Catholic universities are essential to the growth of the church and the development of Christian culture, I don't think he ever anticipated what could happen. Rather than an institutional commitment to the service, Many Catholic colleges are now in service to the city and the culture and those ideals. They've decided to be part of the culture. Cardinal Burke was just here last week and gave this wonderful presentation. And I, I spoke with a lot of people afterwards. And I think what made such an impression on me and others was he used the word sentimentalism as really the problem here. Sentimentalism is he thinks at the root of many of the problems we face, this misguided sense of tenderness and compassion that is separated from Christ. It's just sort of free hanging there. He talked about it. He was speaking of those who want to change the unchangeable teachings of the church on marriage. And he said many of them seem to be motivated by a misguided misguided sense of sentimentality or sentimentalism, a kind of tenderness that seems compassionate and tells people what they want to hear. It is easier to do that. I like to be nice. I'd rather be nice. I would have been happy to give him, because he's a nice, a nice person who wrote that book, Beyond the Abortion. I think his heart is in the right place. He wants us to get along. But we can't get along if you think RU486 is not an abortion film. <laughs> Flannery O'Connor once wrote that sentimentality or tenderness leads to the gas chamber. And I know you probably think that's hyperbolic for me to say, but it does. When you can just say, we don't want to hurt your feelings, so we're going to let you do whatever you want to do and say whatever you want to say. To be truly in service to the church, we must do, as we do here at Franciscan, be inspired by the Christian message and promote it. It's what we're trying to do here at the Veritas Center. We have a, a center here where faculty contribute and work together in creating articles for the popular press, the media, the newspapers, magazines. And we've had some success in doing that. We're trying to get make inroads in other forms of media, um, television, radio, as much as we can. And that's our goal, to get this word out, this compassionate message that's always tied to Christ, not separated, not free-floating. It's always, because when you divorce tenderness or sentimentality from Christ's message, you get in trouble. The late sociologist Philip Reef once wrote that the central purpose of culture 
is to regulate the relationship between the no imposing, imposing voice of commandment <clears throat> and the yes-seeking desires of the individual. He was not himself a religious man, but he knew the power of religion and the need for religion. He said, religion stamps our inner lives with creed, which deliver us from slavery to instinct. He believed that these creedal truths are what keep us from becoming barbarians. And that is a frightening thought, that if we really lose religion, I'm teaching Intro to Sociology this year, and it's my favorite course. I was just telling Ann Delaney that I, I could always teach the service courses. They're my favorite because they're first-year students. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to tell them about sociology. And I always teach about socialization, how we learn the values and norms and beliefs of a culture. And I say socialization is a lifelong process. It begins with our family, and then we're socialized by school once we go to school and our peers and the media, but I always have a fifth agent of socialization, which is the church. Because in every sociology textbook I've ever used in 30 years of teaching, there were five agents of socialization, family, peers, media, school, and church. Well, all of a sudden, I get the new edition of my sociology textbook for my students, the 15th edition, and what do you think is missing from the agents of socialization? The fifth one, the church, no longer there. They start a new chapter. There are four agents of socialization. Well, first of all, all my lecture notes say there are five, so I'm not going to change them. And I'm also not going to change my overheads. And I'm also not going to change my message. Because at Franciscan, there are five agents of socialization. We are still socialized by the church, but it's disturbing to me to think that the sociology textbook people and the publishers say, well, let's leave off that church part because nobody's really socialized by the church. Nobody uses the church to get their values, norms, and behaviors. It's really the media. So they devoted extra time to the media, that that's where we're being socialized. And it is fun. I love in the intro course, we talk about the media and how we're shaped by it, and we talk about Project Runway and the Housewives of Beverly Hills. and I. They know more about popular culture than I do, so it's a lot of fun. I learn a lot. They tell me all these reality shows that I cannot believe. I thought The Bachelor was bad, but you wouldn't believe what's on some of the cable networks. And people are socialized that. They get their ideas about family from sitcoms. You know, the, the sitcoms about the, the perfect gay couple that have the perfect children and then the heterosexual couple that are just losers with have these unadjusted, poorly adjusted children. That's, that's, we're being socialized by that. And young children who watch a lot of <coughs> TV are so, but the church still plays a role. And it is kind of a worry for me that sociology has abandoned church as, I hope John Paul knew the importance of culture and he knew of the importance of the church in shaping that culture and the Catholic school as part of the church in shaping that culture. The Holy Father knew that any living creature and any living culture, including the culture of the Catholic Church, is constantly under attack by those who want to change that culture. Culture is never static. Sociologists know that, you know that. Even the postmodern people acknowledge that everything is in flux. Now, the unchangeable teachings don't change. But the church may change some behaviors, but they're not going to change. I look at Excordia as a way to help us disarm those attacks, disarm the barbarians, 
And I have looked at this way since the early 90s. With God's help, we can begin to change that. There are indeed some Catholic colleges that are following Franciscans' example of reclaiming their identity. It's a beginning, but it's a hopeful sign. God has promised us that the gates of hell will never prevail, but he also warned us that we are in a war against evil forces intent on destroying us. Here at Franciscan's Veritas Center, we hope to be farting that war every day, not because we like to fight, but because we believe our church is worth fighting for. Sociologists know that no institution, especially like the Catholic Church, exists without conflict over contested cultural issues, like the ones we are talking about here. If we truly believe that what the church teaches is true, then these culture wars will continue, and faithful Catholics who accept the truth of these teachings must be willing to engage. Sociologists like Philip Reif and James Davison Hunter caution us that we can never really get beyond the culture wars. Reif's books remind us that where there is culture, there is struggle. By its very nature, the work of culture is the matter and manner of disarming competing culture something that always threatens sacred order. doesn't mean the church is resistant to change. It's constantly being recreated in certain ways. Some change is inevitable, but this recreation cannot be guided by sentimentalism or changing values in a values marketplace of society. And the church cannot change her infallible teachings. They are the definitive teachings, thus the Catholic culture wars will never end. And they should not end because all culture is constantly negotiated. This is not to say, as Scott warned us last night, that the church has to be filled with hostility and that we have to be cranky Catholics. We're going to Mass soon, so that's a good thing after this. There's no reason to be angry, because I've learned that being a cranky Catholic is being a less persuasive Catholic. I learned that at University of San Diego. I, I was worried I was becoming very cranky. Um, and when you're cranky, it leads to more campus abuses and even crankier Catholics because they are like, what's wrong with her? People can be persuaded by truth, especially if it's conveyed in a caring way. And we try to do that with our publications, although some of mine are pretty cranky, I know. <laughs> when people meet me, they sometimes say, I didn't expect you to be nice. <laughs> I don't know why you thought that. <laughs> Franciscan is filled with cheerful Catholics. And we're so blessed by that. There's a joy here that you just don't see elsewhere. It's contagious. It's one of the reasons I'm here. It becomes part of the culture itself. And I'm grateful for your presence here. And thank you for joining us in this ongoing culture struggle. Thank you. First off, I want to thank uh, Dr. Symington for organizing this, uh, this symposium. And I especially want to thank Dr. Hendershot for her reflections on Ex Corde Ecclesiae. She really brought out, I think, some striking and challenging points about what it means for a university to be in service to the mission of the Catholic Church. So what I want to do is just highlight briefly some of the themes that Dr. Hendershot spoke about, and then expand on one or two of those from my perspective as a faculty member in the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Department, as a licensed professional counselor, and as a member of the Ohio Counselor, Social Worker, and Marriage and Family Therapist Board. The first thing that struck me about Dr. Hendershot's talk was the title itself, In Service, Shaping the Culture, Serving the Church. 
And I guess it's really not by accident that she chose very action-oriented words, shaping and serving, to indicate the kind of relationship that a Catholic university has to the local community and the broader society in which it's situated. So before she really started to share her thoughts with us, she already indicated answers to the questions posed by the organizers of this symposium. Specifically, is a Catholic university meant to be a mirror or a transformer of culture? And what is the responsibility of a Catholic university to the surrounding culture? So to both of these questions, she passionately proposed that a Catholic university should strive not to take its identity as an institution that comes from the heart of the church for granted. In order that grounded in this identity, the university can affirm positive aspects of culture and also boldly attempt to transform culture where it doesn't protect human dignity. Dr. Hendershot also rightly pointed out that in order for a Catholic university to be able to shape culture, it must explore and embrace rather than protest or even forsake its relationship to the church. And through various examples, she highlighted a kind of concerning state of affairs in which faculty, representatives, and even donors of Catholic institutions of higher education have supported public policies or popular opinions that oppose church teaching rather than help others understand the meaning and the purpose of those teachings. And when she reflected back to the release of the papal document that we are celebrating with this symposium, she recalled her observation then that the greatest threat to the Catholic higher education is a lack of Catholic identity, not ex corde ecclesiae. So counselors like myself might call what she noticed among Catholic institutions an identity crisis. So what does it take for an individual or a system to address a crisis of identity in order to be able to have a transformative effect on culture and society? In the psychology literature, there are lots of theoretical propositions and research-based studies related to all kinds of identity development, just a few of which address topics like adolescent identity formation, psychosocial development, racial, cultural, and ethnic identity development, and gender identity formation. One researcher whose work in this area that I've always found interesting is psychologist James Marcia. And Paul, for your sake, Marcia is a Canadian. <laughs> um, Marcia, who furthered the work of noted analyst and scholar Eric Erickson, investigated how adolescents come to settle on their vocational selves and reach conclusions about religious and political ideologies, intimate relationships, gender roles, and worldviews in general. And although his research is largely focused on adolescence, it's also been widely applied to adult development. And I think some of his findings are worth noting as we consider what it takes for Catholic universities to shore up their identities. The Marsh's work highlighted two key ideas. First, a strong identity comes from a person's ability and willingness to explore relevant possibilities and perspectives 
in the midst of some sort of life transition, problem, or upheaval. Second, a well-formed identity involves a person in being able to make a commitment to something or someone after a period of exploration. So of course, individuals and systems can engage the identity formation process in a variety of ways. So for example, in moments of transition, one might decide to not really engage in much exploration of relevant perspectives, and also <coughs> not commit to any significant decision that would help form his or her identity. So you might imagine this as kind of the free spirit who never really seems to get settled down. Another conceivable path involves a person committing to a decision without any exploration. So this might take the form of deference to an authority figure, such as a parent, without a person really coming to know who he or she is in the light of that authority figure. So you could think about a child who really doesn't explore career possibilities, but dutifully enrolls in law school because her parents are lawyers and they want their child to be a lawyer as well. And finally, it's possible that one might engage in a process of reflecting and questioning and exploring, reflecting and questioning and exploring and so on, but never really reach a commitment. Marsha's research indicated that in healthy and meaningful identity formation, exploration and commitment go hand in hand. But even with Marsha's theory as one indication of what's involved in the identity formation process, it's really hard to say what went wrong, and in light of Dr. Hendershot's remarks, what is still going wrong at some Catholic universities today who seem to have lost their identities, and subsequently, the ability to shape culture toward the message of Christ. Could it be that faculty and administrators of some universities have failed to engage in an authentic exploration process about what it means to be an institution with a Christian inspiration, and without that period of exploration, have then committed to a culture that's strongly influential, but not strongly in support of the university's own Catholic mission? Or could it be that some universities have explored their Catholic heritage genuinely, but are reticent or afraid to speak about, that is to publicly commit to, positions on critical social issues that would in fact be identity forming? Or perhaps some Catholic institutions neither authentically explore the meaning of their Catholic heritage, nor do they use their scholarly endeavors to take a stand on issues of faith and morals that are currently relevant in our society and culture. So this last group represents to me the kind of organization that one almost forgets as Catholic. Such institutions, for example, might offer activities and opportunities to their students, like on-campus mass and confession, theology major, campus ministry outreach programs, Bible studies, and the like. These are valuable opportunities for helping students integrate faith with life. However, there is a difference between serving the church by providing opportunities and shaping culture, or as Ex Corde says, becoming an instrument of cultural progress for individuals as well as society. Though important, 
A Catholic university cannot shape culture only by offering opportunities. It must be willing to commit to a Catholic mission and identity, especially on issues of public tension and discord. Ex Corde calls the Catholic university to a bold and I think risky mission. Quote, if need be, a Catholic university must have the courage to speak uncomfortable truths which do not please public opinion, but which are necessary to safeguard the authentic good of society, end quote. What I hear in this statement from Ex Corde is an invitation to commitment, the kind of commitment that is identity forging. James Marsha pointed out that the process of identity formation is especially ripe and active during transition periods and points of upheaval. In these moments, people and systems have the chance to search themselves, to consider what values, morals, and ideologies are most akin to their heritage, and then to renew their identities. We are, I believe, in a moment in history that is marked by human suffering, upheavals, and cultural transitions. Dr. Hendershot pointed out some of the moral and social problems with which we are dealing today, including abortion, attacks on the sanctity of marriage, end-of-life care that doesn't always honor human dignity, and assaults on religious freedom. Now, therefore, is an opportune time for Franciscan University and all Catholic universities to participate in a genuine process of self-exploration so that we can boldly engage society and culture with a certain grounding in our identities as Catholic institutions. This symposium on Ex Corde Ecclesiae has provided an excellent forum for reflection on our heritage as a university that comes from the heart of the Church. Furthermore, it signifies that as an institution of higher education, Franciscan University has not taken its relationship to the Church for granted. In fact, by honoring Ex Corde, we indicate the kind of interested, respectful, and caring relationship that we, as a university, choose to be in with the Church. Dr. Hendershot's talk indicated that a Catholic university is one that should strive to shape culture toward the message of Jesus Christ and also to serve the Church. Through her analysis, she raised doubts about some institutions' Christian mission of service. Essentially, she asked of those universities, to whom are you truly in service? This is a valuable question that each of us who works at a Catholic university should ask ourselves. Who do I really serve? Where is my personal and professional life grounded? In what ways do I communicate to the university, local and global communities, that I represent the message of Jesus Christ, especially in the discipline area in which I work? More specifically, Ex Corde suggests that serving the Church means that faculty study serious contemporary problems in order to learn about the sources of those problems and their ethical and religious facets. In the counseling field in which I work, my colleagues and I regularly consider contemporary problems such as opposition to the sanctity of marriage, divorce, 
the breakdown of the family, the impact of poverty on child development, abortion, limits on person's ability to find self-sustaining work, callous treatment of older adults in the late stage of life, threats from suicide and homicide, and other issues that undermine what St. John Paul II calls true human development. Through the study of both discipline-specific and Catholic and Christian literature, we work with students to come to an understanding about what it means to be a professional counselor and an individual who has a Christian understanding of the human person. Currently, these two identities do not always serve the same purpose or operate from the same set of values. For example, counselors and counselor trainees today can and have faced lawsuits for refusing to counsel same-sex couples. Counselors also will find that their professional associations and conferences sometimes tend to favor humanistic rather than Christian values. Publishers, even of journals that are explicitly charged with printing works related to religious and spiritual values and counseling, also sometimes show bias against accepting works that highlight Catholic interpretation of therapeutic practices. Recently, as a member of the Ohio Counselor, Social Worker, and Marriage and Family Therapist Board, I was engaged in what was a pretty tense discussion with other board members who wanted to issue a resolution to prohibit mental health professionals from engaging in therapeutic work that would help clients who so desire minimize behaviors associated with same-sex attraction. There are also two bills introduced in the Ohio legislature now that would aim to have the same effect and that would have concrete implications for mental health professionals. So working as a counselor and a counselor educator, I regularly come into contact with the wonderful resilience of human persons who have faced significant life challenges and work to overcome them. I've also seen the sad outcomes in individual lives of a society that does not seem to value human life and human difference, the Christian understanding of the family, social justice, a fair distribution of resources, and the like. I find myself now, more than ever before, pondering and renewing my own Christian mission in the professional arena in which I work. Reflecting on the meaning of ex corde to my role as a faculty member at Franciscan University has truly deepened my sense of Catholic mission and identity. Each one of us here has been invited to engage our work not just as a job, but as a vocation to serve God by serving students and society with a faithful, reflective, and committed grounding in the mission of the church to serve Christ and to shape the world around us. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.